Half the fun of sports, or is it really all the fun, lies in wearing just the smartest types of sports clothes. Vogue, 1919. Sportswear as fashion. Leisure wear, yoga pants, sports bra. They're a modern phenomenon, yes? They represent a modern era of comfortable clothing for women, of modern sentimentalities and changing ideas towards leisure time and particularly femininity. Actually, maybe not. Sportswear, in fact, as I'm sure you realise from the episode title, (laughs) goes back further than we think. Comfortable, leisure-based clothing for men and for women has been an ever-changing style for generations and each trend represents its new era. Let's think about the tennis dress, football kits, swimwear. Each shift and change, with each change we see accommodation of practical comfort clothing, the idea of leisure time and the acceptability of women in sport, as well as the need for suitable clothes to take part in that sport. Until we get to today, in which the sports bra and yoga pant combo, as well as a sports kit, has become a staple in many wardrobes that functions as fashion as well as practically. So, let's get into it. Sportswear, as its own term, is attributed to an American fashion term originally used to describe separates, used since the 20s and 30s, and this has become to be applied to daytime fashions of varying degrees of formality. But, at its core, the origins of sportswear as fashion can be attributed to the Belle Epoque time period, which is around 1871 to 1914 in the West. In the States, this is known as the Gilded Age, and represents a time period of huge change in fashion. This was also the age of newly found leisure time, which completely changed modern society. And so, of course, sporting clothes changed accordingly and very quickly to accommodate men and women who are now playing new roles in the world, women particularly. And the idea of leisure time plays a huge role in this. Now, as I said, it's really the sort of Belle Epoque era that sums up this changing modern idea of having leisure. And that is why many of the images you see are not a great deal older than sort of just before the turn of the century, purely because leisure time and sport for women in particular was a rarity. And they certainly didn't have specific outfits catered for this. Sportswear as a subtopic basically represents changing social ideals, particularly towards women, as I said, and becomes a very interesting case study in which to track political ideals, ideas towards gender and also race and the social acceptance of leisurely individuals. So with this in mind, I'll primarily be focusing on women's fashion here and mostly in the UK, USA and Europe, purely because men's sportswear was more simple, more functional and didn't really develop and change as quickly and in quite the same way as women's wear so there's just a lot less to discuss however i will also talk about them a little bit they're not going to be completely (laughs) away from this episode but male centered sportswear is also not very different to what we have now with maybe a few exceptions like swimwear and those are the things that i will primarily chat about in terms of men's sports fashion i also think the modern sportswear phenomenon is particularly advertised towards women brands like lululemon and sweaty betty are very much tailored towards women and their specific sportswear gym wear looks and we have today uh, a typically feminine sportswear style and so I think talking about the history of feminized sportswear which of course can be worn by anybody and everybody today is the most interesting to me in the past in terms of changes and developments and the idea of practicality finally coming in for women in a way that hadn't been seen before sporting clones were specifically designed for them. So we'll start more or less at the beginning and it was in the early 1900s once this idea of 
sport and leisure for women was well established in the golden Belle Epoque era and this is stated in a book called Sportswear in Vogue and it says sports for women was a dressing up game and convention had everything to do with the development of the sporting mode and practicality very little. The term is therefore not necessarily synonymous with active wear clothing designed specifically for participants in sporting pursuits post sort of 1910 but in fact for the first years of the century women desired to emulate men in their sportswear and this small development functioned as a representation of their pre-1900s restrictions. For a lot of history however women particularly before the turn of the century as I said were just expected to wear their normal clothes to do sport and these sports were offered low level activity sports that a woman could take part in in corsets and busts such as ice skating or archery. Obviously still incredibly difficult sports but nothing that involved a massive amount of physical exertion like rugby or boxing. There are however images of women in the late 1800s in specific tennis wear that essentially the classic late 1880s attire with layers, high necks, ruffles and a big bustle but these were just white and these would have worked as summer dresses and worn for sport as well and that's why I said it was in this sort of late 1800s era that you start to see fashion slightly developed to be just a little bit more functional and these would have been made of a lighter material but as I said they would have still had a layered very fashionable bustle and would have been very washable unlike dresses made of silk or satin in this um, shape at this time period I'll share an image of one of these dresses from the V&A collection to my Instagram page which is at Silhouettes Podcast so have a look at that but essentially you see this sort of combination of fashion in terms of women having to still stick to the fashionable outfits that were expected of them but made of materials and in certain ways that make them a little bit more practical. So with this in mind, initially sports clothing was available from European hooker houses and sort of sport garments were increasingly worn as everyday or informal wear. So dresses such as these, which were advertised as summer or sport dresses, started to be worn by women every day because of how wearable and practical they were. So, you know, we're not the only people nowadays who wear um, uh, gym wear or yoga pants as our everyday clothes. This has sort of been a thing for a long, long time. And this sportswear was initially designed to still be fashionable, as I said, but it was very performative and appropriate for the time. And advertisements in magazines such as Vogue advertised images of women in fashionable sporty clothes like tennis dresses, pretending <laughs> to take part in the sport, posing for the sport, but not really partaking. And they all had these sort of really delicate limp wrists holding their tennis rackets or were posed in very uncomfortable positions that were used to advertise the fashions for women that were classed as sportswear, but they were actually just for women to wear alongside men on sports fields they were almost used as like beautiful trophies but not actively able for women to do the sport so that might be why you saw a lot of these clothes worn on the everyday because they were still fashionable they were slightly more comfortable but they still were not really appropriate for sport in any way <laughs> they were very performative however eventually the intentions of these sort of fashions changed and they did become designed to be easy and comfortable to wear particularly for use by women women as their day-to-day -day clothes as I said and these leisure clothes became fashionable as well as functional over time with accessible fastenings that enabled modern emancipated sporting women to dress themselves without assistance and it was the popularity of these clothes from being advertised in places like Vogue that eventually developed into making the clothes actually more accessible to wear. The Rational Dress Society even pioneered wearing trousers for sport and occasionally traditional daytime clothes are adapted for 
sport use by adding extra bock pleats or shorter skirts. Competitiveness for women, however, was not encouraged until far later into the 1930s, when many new sports and revolutionary activities developed, such as keep fit exercises and squash, which allowed women to become better housewives and mothers by becoming stronger and fitter. (laughs) Vogue said in 1928 that a woman who can stand on her head in the bedroom is likely to have a better poise in the drawing room. Hmm. Ultimately, clothes that allowed women to do sport were not necessary and these sorts of useful uniforms were made for men for years and years and were only later being developed for women. But we see this as a slow progression into comfortable everyday wear, clothes that can be used in leisure activities slowly to become clothes that can be used in active sport. And essentially this idea of practical wearable clothing has developed over time to the sporting gym wear that we know, yoga leggings and sports bra, which again are very easy to put on, comfortable, functionable, wearable, but also appropriate to wear during the daytime. And leading this idea of design was a man in the 20s called Jean-Jean Patel, who accustomed the fashionable world to that idea of being dressed in leisure clothes in public during the daytime. He removed the sleeves from tennis dresses and raised the hemlines of his sports dresses and this in fact allowed dress hemlines to rise alongside daytime dresses so we actually have a lot to thank for sportswear and changing not only sports clothes but all daytime clothes because the rise in comfortable hemlines for tennis dresses as an example slowly developed into women wanting this to become part of their day-to-day dresses as well so you can slightly see here the general line i'm going with just to introduce us to this idea It's a slow development as it always is, but sportswear actually played a huge, huge part in the emancipation of female clothing and changed the way people saw how they wore clothes. There's a great deal of politics to the idea of sportswear in the past and this idea of the, you know, femininity and appropriateness for women was really, really tied into what was deemed appropriate on the sports field and this developed into what was deemed as appropriate to wear day to day. They were initially two very separate things and slowly slowly merged into one and this began with the dresses I mentioned earlier in the Belle Epoque era in the late 1800s. So now you've got a bit of general background into sports fashion, I want to talk about individual sports as there are really cool sportswear styles that develop more micro within these. I've just sort of cherry picked a few of the most well-known sports and also the sports that I think have the best sort of fashions attached to them. It's so interesting to me how each sport has its own personalised, very specific look and how these looks became so synonymous with the actual sport itself. You won't even need to see someone actively participating in a sport for example like tennis or football you could just see them holding a racket or wearing the right tennis dress or wearing a football uniform to know what sport they are going to be undertaking or what sort of team they're part of it's really fascinating and these are often quite varied between the sports for men and women alike and each have their own color scheme their own design their own shape and this is something we do see less today at very low levels but we still see often at professional levels in sports think of tennis as I said and English football kits and cricket even. I do think this has become more muddied 
And often people will just wear sort of general sporting clothing um, if they're doing it, you know, day to day or just for a bit of fun. But it definitely still exists. And these uniforms, these fashions have become so synonymous with certain sports. So let's go through it sport by sport and go through some of the most iconic original looks that are attached to them. I'm going to begin with tennis. (laughs) For me, tennis looks are some of the most iconic in vintage sportswear particularly. So according to the Fashion Museum in Bath, 1920s tennis looks were a major departure from the ankle length skirts worn with petticoats from a decade earlier. And it really is a small snippet of the fashion emancipation of women in this era. Prior to this, women were still expected, and we see that a lot here, to wear their bulky everyday fashions, including long skirts, jackets, hats, cardigans, and bustles and corsets even. However, these were sometimes altered to become slightly more masculine, which the idea was here adding ties to make themselves deemed more um, viable for participating in sports. But it was not later that the traditional tennis dress became a staple for women to allow them to play properly and competitively. As British Vogue said in 1929, sport has more to do with anything else in the evolution of the modern mode. And that is a perception of adaptation to the needs of the game, which modern dress has evolved. The short silk sleeveless tennis dress is a clear visual aid of this, which featured box pleated skirts and sometimes decorative seams. It was in fact tennis player Helen Wills who first brought the visor to the tennis court in the 1920s, which is another huge staple of the 1920s and just general tennis dress. She wore a white eye shade at tournaments throughout her career, including at Wimbledon, where she won an amazing eight single titles between 1927 and 1938. I'll share another collection of items held by the Fashion Museum in Bath to give you an indication of what 1920s tennis wear looked like as there's some great examples on there. In the 1920s however tennis wear wasn't just white. There are actually multiple examples of colourful tennis attire including bright pink numbers that are my personal (laughs) favourite and these were often quite decorated fastens with belts and buckles and even had sort of bits of lace and things like that decorated on them which is not really what we associate with the boxy pleated practical tennis dress today. Bare arms and bound heads were also a mark of the tennis look into the 1930s. This is seen in a lot of advertisements from Vogue of the late 1920s and 30s. Many women even wore stylish tennis dresses such as sleeveless dresses to allow for tans and backless dresses into the 1930s. There is an advertisement from Saks in 1929 that even shows a girl wearing a two-piece outfit to make her even more fashionable. Now in the 1920s and 30s even men were only allowed to undress so far and so their tennis outfits were still pretty rigorously uniformed and there is an advertisement from Vogue again in 1925 that shows women shocked at a tennis player removing his jumper to show his undershirt on the court. (gasps) So this idea of uniform is also very strictly tied to what is seen as appropriate and appropriate levels of undress for the era, which even in the 1920s was much stricter than I think we realise. But later on into the 1940s, the choice of sports clothes was no longer a matter of propriety, but definitely of fashion and preference. And this is stated by Charlie Lee Potter in sportswear and vogue. All the dresses, he says, have now become pleated skirts and shoulders are becoming wider and the waistline became higher. And women like men even began wearing sports suits that included high socks, shorts or trousers. 
Some women, even in the 1940s, started to wear swing blazers for tennis, as well as short socks and trainers. However, fabric restrictions in both Britain and America had a drastic effect on the production of sportswear, which was quite a lot of importance during the 40s. Availability and styles really limited dress. And for example, dresses could not have more than five buttons and had minimal yardage around the hem. And this it was just all very, very restricted because of the war, obviously. So by the end of the war, it had become impossible to buy a tennis dress. And that is probably why the image of a fashionable tennis dress is so supplanted in the 1920s and 30s mindset. It didn't really have a great deal of importance in the mid-century. However, there was an advantage to this for women as this allows the pre-mentioned adoption of snacks for sports and women's services due to the shortages of fabric for skirts and the shortage of stockings. And this is really represented by what women began to wear as they were playing tennis. By the end of the decade, the restrictions on tennis wear really were dissolving. For example, in 1949, Gussie Moran appeared at Wimbledon in her notorious lace trim knickers, which were designed by Teddy Tinling, and this was a huge moment in tennis clothes. Tinning was accused of putting sin and vulgarity into tennis, but lace actually began to be seen on multiple different um, sporting clothes after this. And again, as mentioned by Charlie Lee Potter, this eventually created a fashion for more decorative, pretty tennis dresses in the 1950s, which included all-in-one play suits, which were a staler style, poplin blouses and skirts with elasticated waists, and dresses of all colours with things like diagonal buttons, cap sleeves and flared skirts, and even things like romper suits made of lace with elasticated waists, long dresses and trapeze necklines and it was just really a huge development in the idea of playfulness in tennis and a lot of these gave us the idea of movement and to be able to show your tennis knickers underneath and a lot of these had very exaggerated pleated skirts to be able to do this and this also represented the popularity of Dior's new look in the 1950s it all comes around (laughs) and it was all of these small details that in the 1950s became essential for tennis and this really represents what later happens in the 60s and 70s and even later to what we now know as the short pleated tennis skirt and that's rather than it being a long straight dress like we saw in the 20s into the 1960s and 70s tennis wear became really quite interesting Teddy Tinnan again was so popular and he completely revolutionized women's tennis clothes by making them functional often with long legs and very usable but still very glamorous and eye-catching of course women still wore traditional white pleated tennis skirts a lot of the time but we did see a bigger range of tennis suits becoming popular including more shorts and more trousers and this was a natural progression from what we saw happen in the 50s Since the 70s and 80s, tennis wear had not really changed a great deal to what we see now, but this was really pioneered by this early design of the white long tennis dress in the 1920s. And I think that is still the image that's quite supplanted in our minds in terms of a tennis dress developed into the short pleated skirt and knickers that started in the 1950s. Okay, so moving on from tennis, I also want to go a little bit into swimwear because I think historically swimwear is really interesting. (laughs) It's also really visually iconic for a great deal of decades and the choices and fabrics that people were making in certain time periods 
is a sort of little representation of that era in terms of its politics and its social ideals. And this is also interesting to me because it's not massively dissimilar for men and women alike. Now, I'm sure you all know the image of the knitted full length <laughs> swimming costume that women had to wear with the long legs and the high necks and the striped top and sort of knitted ensemble that was also worn by men. But these actually had a huge array of styles. For example, the first swimsuit that is held in the Fashion Museum in Bath again is a navy blue woolen suit from 1900 that had a white trim and is very nautical in style. It also has short boxy sleeves and a neat little collar which makes it look sort of like a smart casual jumpsuit from the 1940s. They also hold a blue and white knitted striped bathing suit for men that actually fastens on the left shoulder with bone buttons. But on the whole, swimwear really didn't change a great deal. It sort of popped up very suddenly when in the late 1800s you had the popularity of taking the water in places like Scarborough and the Isle of Wight sort of became a staple of health and obviously this necessitated certain clothing because obviously what we were wearing in the late 1800s women particularly was probably dangerous to go into water in a bustle and a corset in a hundred layers and so you sort of saw these weird knitted suits become popular for women and even in the regency era too these started i don't know if you've watched sanderton but that's a really good example of that there but the sort of the idea that we have is definitely the late 1800s knitted suit with the blue and white stripes but there was a lot of really interesting versions of this depending on probably class and the amount of money you spent on the suit. But we do see these later develop into proper swimsuits. And since then, swimwear hasn't really changed a lot. It's just not knitted anymore. <laughs> you get um, the sort of introduction of synthetic fabrics making this change a great deal in the mid-centuries, particularly in the 60s. And since then, the idea of knitted swimwear is sort of out the window. The idea of the bikini hasn't really developed a great deal. But I sort of wanted to talk about it a bit in this episode because I think the knitted Victorian swimsuit is such an iconic image and it's interesting to see where it came from and how it's developed and if you look online I can't list them all here there are some really really great examples of weird and wonderful swimsuits that sort of differ from the idea that we maybe have particularly have a look on the fashion museum's website and on fashion museum bath on instagram Another iconic sportswear look is definitely the golf outfit. Arguably, golf is a sport that has one of the most iconic sportswear looks, and it's just instantly recognisable. And it actually has a really interesting history, particularly because of its unisex nature. It was in October 1921 that the first Knickerbocker golf suit appeared in American Vogue, and that is the look that I think is really synonymous with golf now. And you're going to find this a lot in this episode, the 1920s, and particularly its ideals towards leisure and emancipation was really the pioneer of a great deal of sportswear. Now, as I found out for a great deal of time before this era, traditionality in sportswear was very essential in golf where etiquette remained. The golfer was forbidden decorative plates and allowed only very sober inverted pleats at the side of the front to facilitate movement. So this idea of the very fun decorated golfing outfit again really did not start until the 1920s. 
It was also very, very much attached to men and women were not really accepted into the sport until even the late 1920s, 30s and even later than that. There was still a big gap between the appropriateness of men and women on the field, particularly in golf, and this is represented in the clothes. For example, American Vogue said in 1925 that the woman was the wrong kind of sportsman for the job. She would probably lose her balance both mentally and otherwise when she finally hit the ball. She does it in a confused swirl of wrong motions terminated in some awkward posture accentuated by her lack of smartness. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) So therefore golf is an interesting one and the uniform is not necessarily there to play the game but it has some remnant of the old etiquette and this was used to steer women away from the game if they didn't have the right clothes. Women for example would not wear exactly what men were wearing with the full golf attire because of this idea of appropriateness and etiquette but they would adopt some small elements of it such as the jumper, the you know top. (laughs) Men however would wear the full knickerbocker outfit including flap cap, golf jumper, large fluffy gingham trousers including socks and golf shoes. However, it's not into the 1940s that advances made in tennis clothes that we saw earlier then permeated to the golf course and women were allowed to play wearing whatever they like in sleeveless tops and even for some they wore slacks, much like their male counterparts. Now being smart and dressing right was still very essential for the golfer, hence a lot of these outfits were cut with silver buttons and worn with smart scarves but the rigorous rules, particularly the ones that were afforded to women, slightly became more lax and Interestingly, this kind of represents the general changing ideas towards women fashion um, at this time period, particularly in the 1940s. Golfing clothes did not change really drastically until we reached the 1970s, where fashion designers were using more fabric and golfers combined a new, more mm, tomboyish, I hate that word, look with the traditional golfing clothes. And this included women wearing full trousers, trainers, knickerbockers, golf hats, adding slightly more feminized female cut jackets to the attire. And we really see a sort of merge of the masculine and feminine. And this is accentuated by some of these golfing looks. And I think that the same can be said for 1970s fashion in general. And from then on, the sort of golfing look has not really changed a great deal. We have some adopting, obviously, the more traditional style that we saw before the 1940s. But some are still able to adopt more merged sort of modern ideals within their uniform. But still, I think this idea of the um, flat cap, the trainers, the knickerbockers, the jumper is such an iconic look and still so associated with tennis. And as I said before, it was seen for the first time in the 1920s by a designer who designed it for Vogue and it completely supplanted this image of the uniform in our mind. Obviously golf as a sport first originated in I think 15th century Scotland and players wore thick fabrics like plaid and tweed to protect them from the cold weather as it was an outdoor sport but knickerbockers or plus fours were paired with flat caps and heavy tweed jackets but this originally already established thick tweed trouser jumper look was really supplanted by this 1920s American Vogue and that is sort of where the idea of the fashionable golf outfit can be seen so I'm not saying that that is the first time anyone wore an outfit for golf not at all (laughs) golf is a very old sport but more the idea of the very Americanized westernized knickerbocker golf look that's where it can be first seen 
Now, moving on, I want to talk a little bit about cricket because cricket whites, as they're called, are also a very recognisable sporting look. These are also known as flannels, the kit, the costume and the uniform worn by most cricketers. And it usually consists of trousers, a shirt and a white jumper. And the uniform is essentially called whites because originally the uniform was either white or cream. But today many competitions are played in coloured kits that represent um, their team, sometimes known as pyjamas. And it's sort of a lot more loose with what people wear. But still, I think the cricket whites are really still worn today. I see around me people playing cricket in their very traditional cricket whites or flannels and they're really recognisable straight away. These were originally made from a variety of flannel-like materials and the trousers were made with high elastic to prevent damage. Shirts and jumpers are often short or long-sleeved and it depends which part you're playing, whether you're a bowler or whatever. I don't know anything about sport. <laughs> Wicket keepers mostly wear long-sleeved shirts in order to avoid abrasions from the grass, for example, when diving for the ball, which is also true for some players while battling due to similar risk. And the jumpers are often cable knit, again, to protect yourself during the sport. So I suppose with this outfit, there's a lot of practicality involved and it was designed as a way to protect you because it, as I said before, same with golf, it's an outdoor sport and so you're necessitating a very specific uniform to protect yourself from both the weather and just the physicality of the sport itself. Now the use of the colour white evolved with the evolution of professional cricket teams in the late 19th centuries, according to Telegraph, with the initial get-up consisting of a formal white shirt emblazoned with red polka dots paired with a shirt and a woolen cap. And there was no particular rule about the uniform apparently, but it was in this sort of time period that the cricket white in the 1800s, 1900s became introduced. Again, this ties in with what I said at the beginning with this idea of sport wear and leisure wear becoming a necessity for particularly for men. It all tracks with the time periods and most of these don't really go greatly further than the 1800s or 1900s in terms of the uniform. Of course, the sports exist before, but they were for a very, very small group of people and didn't necessarily have their own uniforms. You would mostly just wear whatever you had that could be used to play sport. And talking about this idea of uniform, I think one of the most recognisable uniforms, if we're using that term, is the football kit. And football is a very interesting one. It is a sport that definitely has one of the most iconic uniforms. And it is, in fact, a uniform that, since the sport's popularity, hasn't really changed a great deal. I'm sure the minute we think of a football kit, we all know exactly what it looks like. <laughs> you know, the knee length or smaller shorts with the striped top. And there are images of turn of the century men in this very same football uniform. Football has been and still really is a men's sport and so there are not really examples of female football clothes in history. It's only really now that that's massively changing and I think that's why to me tennis clothes is associated with feminine history as this was deemed a sports substitute for women and so the clothes follow suit. Now the first um, traditional uniformed sport football kits began to appear around 1870 with the introduction of the Belle Epoque, of course. <laughs> and in England, colours were often used to represent um, public schools and sports clubs with which the game was associated. And that is really how the football kit um, was born. It was a way to represent who you were with and it was a simple outfit with certain colours that has slowly developed into the sports kit that we know today. Of course, before sort of nylon and polymers were used in clothing, football shirts and shorts were made from cotton and even sometimes wool. 
I'm sure they were not very comfortable to wear, but um, you see this a great deal in sporting clothing from, you know, pre mid-century where wool and cotton was really one of the only things we had to make clothes and so it made sense that it was used in sports clothing as well it also developed slowly so that sponsorships became added to football kits and that's why they were quite simple because it was a way to represent both your team as well as someone who was sponsoring you. And as a business, is a cost-effective way of putting their name in front of consumers and getting awareness, particularly once um, football became more and more popular and particularly once the World Cup was introduced. But essentially, as long as football has been a um, competitive sport, you've had a football kit and it has always been a very simple top and shorts or trousers. But it wasn't really until, again, the 1920s that the sort of the idea of the kit that we have nowadays um, became popularised. But since kits began to evolve, as I said, in the 1870s, people have worn very specific outfits deemed for football use and it's only slowly that they have developed and the um, quality of what they're made with has changed too. Now I also want to give a little nod to some perhaps more niche sports that were really pioneering for the idea of competitiveness for women And this is boxing and mountaineering. (laughs) Now, beginning with boxing, boxing was a hugely male-centred sport for a great deal of English and American history. And I mean, we've all watched Bridgerton, (laughs) right? But one of the earliest mentions of women's boxing is in the travel log of a German man who visited London in 1710. And while taking part in a men's boxing match, he met a woman in the audience who claimed to have previously boxed another woman in the very same venue. One of the earliest known women's boxing matches to have been advertised in print was in London between Elizabeth Wilkinson, Hannah Highfield in 1722. She billed herself as the European championess. Wilkinson and her husband would also fight other mixed couples as a pair, with Wilkinson fighting the other women and her husband the other man. (laughs) These women, however, wore their usual everyday clothes. And this really meant that they were not taken seriously as their male counterparts, seemingly to be more performative or too feminine. In those days, the rules of boxing allowed kicking, gouging and other methods of attack and that, you know, we don't do today. (laughs) And so men often would just wear shorts and nothing else, something women could not do. But women's boxing first appeared in the Olympic Games as a demo sport in 1904 and it was during the 1920s Professor Andrew Newton formed a women's boxing club in London. Women's boxing was hugely controversial though and in early 1926 the Shoreditch Borough Council banned an arranged exhibition match between Annie Newton and Madge Baker, a student at the time. An attempt to hold the match in London instead was defeated by a campaign led by the mayor who wrote, I regard this proposed exhibition of women boxers as a gratification of the sensual ideas of crowd of gold. Men. The Home Secretary, Sir William, was among those opposing the match, claiming the legislature never imagined that such a disgraceful exhibition would have been staged in this country. The story was reported across the country and even internationally, and women before this and during this time period were desperate to be a part of boxing. But they were really not taken seriously, probably because they were having to wear their very traditional outfits, their clothes, their day-to-day wear. And I do wonder, this is obviously me 
speculating, but I do wonder if they'd had their own specific uniforms like something like tennis or golf. Slowly, slowly, they might have been taken more seriously in these earlier time periods because, as we said, it was because of what they were wearing, the fact that people saw it as vulgar and inappropriate, and as well because men often didn't wear anything. I just thought I had to, you know, give a little nudge to that because women's boxing is really cool. <laughs> I absolutely think it's so cool, specifically vintage boxing. You know, you see, if you look at any of the advertisements from this time period of women boxing they're in corsets and bustles and you know lacy dresses just fighting each other and it's it's quite incredible you know sometimes they would strip down to their underwear because it's almost impossible to box in these sort of clothes and I think this is why it was also seen as vulgar and a lot of men would turn up to these events to see an undressed woman and you know that probably is what allowed people like the mayor to think it was an exhibition of women and as I said if they'd had their own uniforms to accommodate their want to take part in this sport it might have completely changed the ideas of women boxing but (laughs) with that in mind I also want to talk a little about female hikers and mountaineers as you might not realize there were many in the turn of the century and they were really incredible. Fanny Bullock, for example, was a record-breaking mountaineer who famously stood on the ice at the top of mountains holding newspapers that called for the votes for women. (laughs) What a legend. (laughs) These women, however, would have worn 19th and early 20th century corsets and crinolines to scale these heights and did so successfully and reached the tops of mountains in their period clothing in order to smash those preconceptions and push the suffragette course. It's amazing, really. There's a woman on Instagram called Kate who's done some amazing research into these women and credit goes to her for the information I found it's very much hidden in the depths but I just wanted to you know give a shout out to these women who push past the preconceptions that women couldn't take part in competitive sports or difficult sports as we saw at the beginning of this episode because of their clothing they did it anyway (laughs) and they did at the time period what a lot of people couldn't in corsets and crinolines which is really just I can't even imagine it I don't think I could even walk down the street in a corset and a crinoline nowadays I just wanted to give a shout out to these women because it is sort of loosely a sport and they didn't have a specific uniform for it but what could they have done if they had you know what what scales could they have got to if they had been allowed the privileges that men had at the time in sport for comfortable practical competitive based clothing you just don't really know um and you know it's sad for these women that that's not something they were able to have but they did it anyway and they broke records in their structured period clothing and just um good on them good on them Now, I'm going to end on something quite fun, and we can't talk about the history of sportswear without talking all about 1980s dance and exercise gear. Very, very different to (laughs) the structured mountaineer outfits that I was talking about a moment ago, but I think that's quite fun. So jazzercise was king in America, particularly in the 1980s, but also in England. We saw it become popular on tapes and things like that and this pioneered a whole new wave for women's activewear fashion which is what I would say definitely attributed to what we see in sportswear today with tight fitting clothes bra like tops tights trainers and leotard style fashions of course as expected this represented the changing ideals for women which began in the 1970s and reached a peak in the 80s in which women became much more sexualized and also more free in their these clothes and these two things happen interestingly beside each other 
together, but one also couldn't have happened with the other, be that for better or for worse. However, according to Lee, in the book Sportswear in Vogue, the fanaticism with which dance and exercise had come to be regarded led to ingenious attempts to deviate from the traditional leotard and tights, and many wore lycra tops with matching flared skirts, and there's just, there was a lot of fun here with what women wore, and they sort of, I think by the looks of it, played into the sexualization this had to be able to have fun and be free with their clothing and take part in really rigorous difficult jazzercise exercise in a way that they never really had been able to before in such a visual way and so I couldn't talk about sportswear fashion without talking about the leotard because it is so iconic and it really was the birth of the sort of tight fitting yoga gym wear that we know of today and I think that can be also attributed to the loosening of sports fabric and sports clothing in the turn of the century and particularly in the 1920s and it all just feeds into one another but but the 1980s, definitely jazzercise, leotard, where was the mother of what we have today in terms of sports leggings, etc, etc. Now, we also can't talk about sportswear without talking about some of the major modern names. And I'm going to talk about here Adidas and Nike. Now, these brands are probably attributed to starting in maybe the 70s or 80s, I think. But actually, you would be wrong. Adidas was started in 1924 by a man called Adolf Dassler in his mother's house joined by his elder brother Rudolf and this was called the Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory. Dassler assisted in the development of spiked running shoes for multiple athletic events as sports was becoming way more popular in the 1920s as we have seen earlier and to enhance the quality of spiked footwear he transitioned from a previous model of heavy metal spikes to utilising things like canvas and rubber which is still used. Dassler persuaded the sprinter Jesse Owens to use his handmade spikes at the 1936 Summer Olympics and that was really what made them hugely popular. However, in 1949 following a breakdown in the relationship between the brothers, Adolf created Adidas and Rudolf established Puma and became Adidas's business rival. So <laughs> that's really interesting and something I completely did not know before. But essentially it was this need to create something way more easy to make and practical for the development and popularity in sports and for use in the Olympics which I haven't spoken a lot on here but the Olympics is ancient and began in the you know Greco-Roman era long 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 time ago but it was sort of at the turn of the century particularly in the 1920s where it started to become more worldwide and more and more popular and that is when we get the birth of the Olympics that we know today but speaking of the brothers their time during the war is also quite interesting and perhaps might make you a little funny feeling about wearing Adidas in the future <laughs> but it is the reason this German brand made its way onto our soil both brothers were a part of the Nazi party and Adolf took the rank of sport ward in the Hitler Youth in 1935 until the end of the war. During the war, the company was running the last sport shoe factory in the country and predominantly supplied the armed forces of Nazi Germany during the war, including the Heer, the Kriegsmarine and the Luftwaffe with shoes. But in 1943, the shoe production was forced to cease operations and the company's facilities and workforce was used to manufacture anti-tank weapons. Following the war, American occupying forces subsequently became made 
major buyers of the Dassler Brothers shoes after attempting to bomb their tank stores during the war and seeing what work they were doing and how, you know, pioneering it was. And later in 1952, following the Summer Olympics, Adidas acquired its signature three-stripe logo from the Finnish athletic footwear brand Kahu Sports for two bottles of whiskey in the equivalent of 1,600 euros. So basically, we have the sportswear and particularly the shoes we know today, thanks to their part as Nazis during the war and how much they helped the Nazis. Take of that what you will. Maybe there's some nuance in there that I don't know. I did not know these men. It's a very complicated issue when you talk about who and who wasn't working for the Nazis. But anyway, little um, nugget of information for you there, which I think is quite interesting and something I absolutely did not know about before I started researching for this episode. So... <laughs> Speaking of the three stripes, which I mentioned just a second ago, this became Adidas's identity mark and it was used on the company's clothing and shoes as a way to market their brand. The branding became so successful that Dassler described Adidas as the three stripes company and he really used this to his advantage. We've also got the idea of the Adidas sandal, which apparently is called the Adilette, didn't know that. And this was originally developed in 1963. And apparently Adidas claims that a group of athletes approached Dassler requesting a shoe be made for the locker room and to this day the resulting sandals are a bestseller. Thank you Google for letting me know all about the word Adelette. <laughs> Speaking of logos, the trefoil logo was designed in 1971 which is sort of the little Adidas flower and was launched in 1972 just in time for the Olympics that were held in Munich and this logo lasted until 1997 when the company introduced the three bars logo and this has been designed by creative director Peter Moore. It was originally used on the equipment range of products but ever since Adidas has been a major competitor in the sportswear market, creating uniforms for golf, tennis, lacrosse, runners uniforms, cricket, basketball and so many others and particularly for the Olympics. And I think their really iconic branding, the three stripes, the two four, the three bars really plays a huge part in this. Adidas is also the largest manufacturer of sports bras in Europe and the second largest manufacturer in the world in general. So that really just gives us an insight into how popular sportswear has become now nowadays but also the fact that it was a company designed in the 1920s really shows how long this idea of practical sporting clothes has been supplanted in our western consciousness particularly in Europe and America and so I think it's a really interesting little case study just to track the history of Adidas on its own. Now in terms of big sports brands we also have to talk about Nike which was originally known as Blue Ribbon Sports BRS and this was founded by track athlete Phil Knight and his coach Bill Bauman in 1964 so not quite as old. The company initially operated at Oregon as a distributor for a Japanese shoemaker making most sales at track meets out of Knight's automobile, which is very funny. <laughs> in its first year in business, it sold 1,300 pairs of Japanese running shoes, grossing £8,000. And by 1965, sales had reached £20,000. By the mid-1960s, it had a retail store in California. And due to increasing sales, it expanded retail and distribution operations on the East Coast and in Massachusetts. In 1971, the relationship between um, Blue Ribbon Sports and the Japanese company came to an end, and it decided to launch its own line of footwear 
footwear based on how popular the brand was becoming. And this was rebranded as Nike and would bear the tick that was designed by Carolyn Davies. The swoosh, as it's apparently known, was first used by Nike on 18th of June in 1971. And I think much like Adidas, it's this kind of really iconic branding that has allowed Nike to stay so popular and be so easily recognisable in the sports wear sort of consciousness. In 1977, an agency created the first sort of branded ad for Nike. And this was called There Is No Finish Line, in which no Nike product was actually shown. But the sort of iconic branding and the iconic line made people want to buy from this brand, which they just assumed would be really good. It was even in 1988 that Nike's agency co-founder coined the now famous slogan, Just Do It, for an ad campaign. And this was chosen by Advertising Age as one of the top five ad slogans of the 20th century. And it's enshrined in the Smithsonian. So basically, Nike um, fell into the era of sportswear in terms of branding, (laughs) in terms of making really good ads, really good branding that made people think they wanted to buy what they were selling. Maybe a slightly different way to what Adidas was doing, which came from having an amazing product and I'm sure Nike had an amazing product too but I think its branding was what allowed it to expand its product line to encompass so many sports in different areas around the world. In 1990 Nike moved to its eight building world campus in Oregon and the first Nike retail store dubbed Nike Town opened in Portland in November of that year and it remains one of if not the most commercially popular sportswear companies in the world and this idea of commercially popular is really important because all you have to wear is something with the Nike tick or swoosh and you instantly know the brand that someone is wearing which is really quite powerful on their part. To round off, as we can see with both of these companies, the Olympics had a huge hand in spearheading their popularity alongside their iconic branding. But also the fact that they existed so early on in our sportswear history shows how much a part of fashion sportswear has actually been. It is not a purely post 80 sentimentality, as we often think, but the practical nature and comfort sports clothing has been a part of fashion history since before the turn of the century even, and even before for many cultures cultures and for men in particular. But I think it's really interesting to track the history of sportswear from, let's say, 1870 onward, when you really see the general introduction of this idea of the kit or the uniform into what we have nowadays. And Each time period, each sport, each kit, each costume tells you so much about our political, social ideas in the countries they represent, what women were allowed to wear, how they could compete, what was deemed appropriate even for men with the idea of undressing on the field seen as, you know, not appropriate for men, which you sort of don't really expect even in the 20s. And also, you know, If you go through specific sports like swimming and tennis, their uniforms are so iconic and just represent the time periods as they develop and change. And that's really is what allowed the idea of the gym wear that we wear now to become so popular. But also that's why it looks the way it does, (laughs) because this slow progression from everyday wear to very practical, easy to put on, you know, sweat proof sportswear, which had its earliest years, hundreds 
hundreds of years ago. But anyway, to round off, I really hope you found this interesting. It's an episode that I didn't think would be quite as complicated <laughs> to write as it has been. So I hope it's been an easy one to follow. There's so much nuance within this and there's so many sports. And I just know nothing about sport, as you can probably tell, because I keep calling it sports. The only thing I know is how cool some of their uniforms are. But nevertheless, I hope you've sort of been able to track this and you found it at least a little bit interesting and you've at least learned one thing from it, which is what I hope from every podcast and maybe made you change your idea about certain things just a little bit. This is going to be the last episode in this Modern Sentimentality series. If you haven't listened to the other two, do. They came just before this and our next series will begin in three weeks and I'm going to go through a deep dive into some of the most iconic eras in fashion history. So look out for that. This one came a week later than I expected because in the UK, the Queen died which was a pretty big deal for our country in general and sort of put everything on hold for a long for the whole 10 day mourning period and the day that I had intended to upload this episode was the day of her funeral so it just didn't seem like the right time to put up this episode so it is a week late I apologize for that but it's here now and I've hope you'd enjoyed it do leave me any feedback talk to me give me ideas what I should do next over on Instagram at silhouettes podcast I look forward to hearing you I love to chat with everybody about what you've got to talk about i love to hear from you but with that in mind i'll see you in the next one in three weeks time stay fab everyone